So what is the absolute best form for screening and diagnosing prostate cancer? Today's guest is Dr. Samir Tanasia from NYU Langone Medical Center, Department of Urology. Samir is a friend, a colleague, and one of the foremost experts in prostate cancer. His clinical experience and research focuses on the use of imaging to detect and treat prostate cancer. Dr. Tanasia has pioneered the use of MRI to diagnose and pinpoint prostate cancer, finding the actual tumor and biopsying that tumor. Also, he has pioneered MRI-guided focal ablative therapies that aim to destroy cancer cells of the prostate while leaving the prostate intact. He has authored many articles, many books, and one of the foremost textbooks for practitioners called The Tenacious Complications of Urologic Surgery, Prevention and Diagnosis. We took a deep dive, Samir and I, into some of the history of prostate cancer diagnosis, PSA, the inception of the test, how it was used, how it's been misused, and the current methods of diagnosing prostate cancer. Why are we better off now than ever before with prostate cancer diagnosis? The evolution to revolution of prostate cancer diagnosis with Dr. Samir Tanasia. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention, my goal, and my purpose to help you optimize your prostate health and help you live better with age. I am glad to have my friend, colleague, and expert in prostate cancer, Samir Tanasia. Samir, thanks for being on nice and early today. We finally made it happen. Well, thanks for having me, Gio. I'm sorry I've been such an evasive guest when you <laughs> literally work down the hall from each other. It's like it's like the neighbor you never get to see next to you. Know, you your neighbor next to you never see. You see other people that live further away, but you never get to see your neighbor right next to you. So yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, I'm happy you're on, Samir, and for so many reasons. So I've referred to you, and obviously very humble, but I've referred to you as the Michael Jordan of prostate cancer because wow. you've done so much great work in this field. You've been a trailblazer in many aspects of the field, including diagnostics of, for prostate cancer. We've been working in the same facility now. I've been there. Well, you've been there much longer. I've been there for about 14 years. It has been amazing. And one of the things when people ask me, how is it to work in, yeah, I'm a naturopathic doctor, right? I'm not a conventional. So how is it working in a conventional setting? I said, it is great. But one of the things is that I'm working with the best. And one of them is Samir Tanasia to even kind of share patience with you. And uh, when we host our conferences and hear you speak, it's just, I feel like I learned so much. So it, I just want to like, I think, but publicly is fine that it's just an honor to work next to you and to work with such an expert in the field. Well, thank you for the kind words. Prostate cancer has been a very big focus of my career for the last now I've been at NYU 28 years, so for the last three decades almost. And I will tell you, Gio, having you in the office has been a big learning experience for me too, because it's interesting. Really, it's been probably two decades now that when patients come to us with prostate cancer, they have questions about lifestyle, diet, how mm -hmm. these things influence their risk, not only risk of getting prostate cancer, but risk of recurrence or progression after treatment. So having you in the office to really advise them in more of an evidence-based manner has been, it's been really good for our patients. It's interesting that I think most, I don't know the right way to say it, non-naturopathic physicians or traditional physicians tend to brush off those questions because they don't know the answers, yeah. right? So you just right. say, well, there's very little evidence or it's not clear what you should or shouldn't do. So having someone around with that knowledge, I think it's really sort of, made us full circle in terms of what we can offer to our patients. Oh, I appreciate that. It's, I think it defines a multidisciplinary institution. I'm biased a little bit towards that, but I think that even if you look at it objectively, more and more institutions are trying to figure this out. How can we implement more lifestyle, more natural approaches? What is the right diet? I mean, diet's just confusing. What is the right diet? <laughs> I probably would sit here and say, well, I don't really know because it's just confusing. Is it ketogenic? Is it this? Is it that? Right. So it's confusing. Let's get into so diagnosis of prostate cancer. You've been in the field for three decades. 
Actually, you've been at NYU for almost three decades. You've been in the field for probably over three decades. How far have we come with diagnosis from that? And even from a little bit before you became you, you became a medical doctor from the pre-PSA era to post-PSA problems with PSA, with overdiagnosis and overtreatment to now where I had a conversation with Neil Shore yesterday. I recorded him yesterday and I asked him, I said, am I delusional or is there, is this the right time? If one has to have a canter and it is prostate cancer, is this the best time to ever have prostate cancer in the history of the disease? So why don't you take it away and take it however you see fit? Yeah. So I can answer the last part first and then work backwards. I think it is, yeah, right. I think it is, I don't know if it's ever a best time to have a cancer, but it is a good time in that we have a lot of options to offer patients, whereas previously men really didn't have much in the way of options. We didn't even understand that you didn't need to treat all prostate cancers, which is now standard practice. And if you do have the misfortune of having a very advanced prostate cancer, metastatic, it's no longer become a disease that has uniformly a two or three year survival. We have so many drugs and treatments to offer that we can keep patients alive with reasonably good quality of life for a very long time. So I think it's a better time to have prostate cancer than when I started. What I'll tell you is that when I started as a medical student, it was right around the time that PSA was being discovered. So PSA as a protein was described in 1989 it really didn't come into clinical utilization until around 1991. And I started medical school in 1988. So mm -hmm. no, in 1986, I'm older than wow. I remember. So because <laughs> of that, right when I started my urology training in 1990, we were still not really fully utilizing PSA. And the way we would do a biopsy, we would only biopsy men who were noted to have a nodule on their rectal exam. So digital rectal. And, and what was the biomarker used at that time, if any, before PSA? Well, there was a biomarker used for staging called acid phosphatase, prostatic acid mm -hmm. phosphatase, but there really was no screening biomarker. So screening was a digital rectal exam in mm -hmm. patients who came in with urinary symptoms, really. There was no population-based mm -hmm. screening. And to give you an illustration of what that was, but when I started my training, the average urologist chief resident would have graduated having done about 20 radical prostatectomies, 20 to 30, and a lot of TERPs for BPH. When I finished my training in 96, the average chief resident was graduating with over 200 radical prostatectomies. And that was purely because we transitioned to screening with PSA and picking up a lot of cancers. And uh, when I started, we did biopsies, guiding them with the tip of our finger. There was no ultrasound used. So we'd put a needle in the rectum with our finger, guide it to the nodule and take a biopsy and hope you didn't biopsy the tip of your finger. Then right around the time PSA came to be, we also introduced transrectal ultrasound. So historically that point, early 90s was a big turning point in the diagnosis and treatment of prostate cancer because it fueled several things. One, imaging of the prostate. Two, screening for prostate cancer. Three, the radical prostatectomy. Prior to that, the nerve spare was right around the time Dr. Walsh in, in, in Baltimore was describing nerve sparing techniques refining them and perfecting them. So my early career was during a period where it was really like a feeding frenzy of sorts in that PSA was screening the population. There was a huge increase in the number of prostate cancers being diagnosed, huge increase in the number of prostates being removed and radiated. And the belief was if you do all this, you will prevent prostate cancer mortality. Intuitively, if you treat it early at its first signs, well, then you're gonna prevent men from dying of prostate cancer. And so like everything in oncology, I always tell the residents training with me that oncology starts with a discovery followed by a rapid escalation of its use. It's good for everybody. And then a mm -hmm. realization that it's not good for everybody 
and we de-escalate. <laughs> and really, mm -hmm. oncology and science in general goes through this cyclical sort of up and down, escalation, de-escalation. So the 90s was really escalation of treatment. What we learned and what we became heavily criticized for was that <clears throat> we weren't helping people. A lot of men mm -hmm. who would have never known they had prostate cancer, never died of prostate cancer, were now living with the side effects of the treatment, the consequences. And so... And it was pretty radical back then, no pun intended, in terms of the treatments. They were not as perhaps as sophisticated as they are now with, with even robot aside, you just got better even with open prostatectomies. Yeah, there, there's no doubt that at the time, good radical prostatectomies were limited to expert surgeons in major centers. And out in the community, people were having tremendous amounts of blood loss. There were occasionally mortalities from the surgery. And so it, it was a challenging operation. I don't know that people ever in, the, in general felt they were as good at doing it as people like Dr. Walsh or Dr. Lepore at our place. It was a tough operation to do. But beyond that, it was really the long-term consequences of the treatment. Radiation wasn't as good. It was good, but the side effects were uh, still substantial. And so that really brought me to my interest in imaging because around as the early 2000s, our field was being heavily criticized based on the results of screening studies to the point that the in 2012, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommended completely against PSA screening. And our field was really under assault, if you assault, if you will, and saying that you're harming people more than you're helping them. And most of us in the world of prostate cancer didn't believe that. Because we remembered a time in the 80s, when most of the patients in the hospital with prostate cancer had spinal metastases, they were they were coming in because they had disease that was incurable, and we had very little to offer them. And what we were observing, even though we were creating a lot of controversy with regard to who benefits from treatment, what, is, what was irrefutable was that each year after PSA screening emerged, the rate of prostate cancer death was going down. So something was forcing. That could be better treatments. It could be better drugs. But it also could be a secondary effect of screening that was not being properly measured somehow in these aggressive screening randomized studies that were being done. So a lot of the focus in the early 2000s was on PSA, but we sort of asked the question, and it's not just my group, but my group and a few others around the world really said, well, what if it's not the PSA that's the problem? Maybe it's the way we're responding to the PSA. The way we do it, high PSA, you come in, you get random biopsies, maybe we're finding a lot of bystander cancer that's not really what we're looking for. And that's fueling over-treatment. But the cancers that we are looking for that we still want to find, when we do find them, we do good for the patient by treating that cancer. And so that's where the idea of imaging to guide the biopsy came from. Because we realize if you can pause right there for a minute, Samir, I just for a reference point, early 1900s PSA, it was it as simple as if it was higher than a four, they required a biopsy or what was the utilization of PSA in the early 1990s versus like the 2000s? And how has that yeah, changed? So four was arbitrarily set on a very small <laughs> study group. We often what we'll often do is do biopsies on a number of men and then say, where do we find cancer and where do we not? And in those days, it was six core biopsy, right? So you just took mm -hmm. six random samples from the prostate and they said, well, we find more cancer above four than below four, so four must be the cutoff, right? <laughs> wow, okay. So that's how, literally how it was found, a very small study that defined that right. four cutoff that became pervasive. What happened through the 90s though, and through the early 2000s, is that a number of prominent people said, well, six cores is not enough. In fact, the first 12 core study, believe it or not, was done at NYU by Dr. Lepore. When I first started, he asked okay. the question, well, we do six and it misses a lot of cancers and we often come back and do a repeat. Why don't we do 12 all at once? And he showed that you could do that without increasing morbidity. And so 12 
emerged as a standard. There were a few other studies published. So we started going up in core number. People said, if not 12, why not 18? If not 18, why not 24? You're going to find more cancer. And we started going down on the PSA threshold. There were a number of studies published to say, why four? Why not 2.5? Why not two? Why not three? And so the PSA cutoffs were going down. The number of samples taken were going up. We were finding tinier and tinier cancers, fueling more and more unnecessary treatments. And that's really where it emerged that the relative number of men we were treating to save one life was too low or was too Mm -hmm. high, rather. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's scroll forward then to about 2010. We really asked the question, well, maybe we're not thinking about this right. It's the only organ that we sample just through a random sort of pincushion manner without imaging. And so MRI emerged. Well, ultrasound is not considered imaging back in those days before the MRI. So it was an ultrasound guided biopsy, but it's not really considered imaging. Well, look, it was intended to be. And if ultrasound had been used only to sample dark areas, what we call hypochoic areas, it may have emerged. But the challenge with ultrasound was very hard for urologists to learn. There's not a radiologist in the room interpreting the ultrasound. Mm-hmm. And uh, quality of ultrasound was variable. And so really ultrasound emu- emerged more as a guidance system for most urologists to find the prostate and to biopsy mm-hmm. through the ultrasound probe. It wasn't really being used as a diagnostic tool to look for the cancer in most cases. Got it. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. So we started doing MRI. And I'll tell you that really the credit goes to the radiology community for developing techniques of multiparametric MRI that allowed us to overcome a lot of the false positives that just a standard MRI would have, improving the imaging quality. And my interest was always then in saying, okay, I'd work with my radiology colleagues and refine the imaging technique and then ask the question, how do we use the imaging to make our whole way of thinking about the disease better and different? So really what we did, we formed a multidisciplinary research group at NYU, a radiologist by the name of Andy Rosencrantz, a pathologist in those days by the name of Savas Mendrinos, who's left, and then a few research students, a few research scientists who are interested in imaging and technology. And we met for two or three hours every Friday to discuss the ideas and come up with a clinical translation to what we do. Within that came collaboration with industry around 2012 to develop a technique of MRI-targeted biopsy called MRI fusion. So one of the problems we had when we first started imaging was, okay, the radiologist would say, Samir, I see a cancer in the left anterior prostate. And I would go to do a biopsy, but I'd have to guess where that was. And if your biopsy didn't show cancer, you didn't know if it's because the radiologist was wrong or if the biopsy had just missed the cancer. And Mm -hmm. so we needed a way to connect the two. And that's where MRI fusion came in. One way you could do it was to biopsy people right in the MRI scanner under MRI guidance. And I did do those procedures for about... Live. Live. We call that an inbore. So you're doing the imaging. And while they're in the MRI scanner, you're literally biopsying them in there and seeing where your needle went on the MRI. I did that for about a year at NYU And I found it very time consumptive. It ties up the MRI scanner. It took longer than office biopsies, which was uncomfortable sometimes for patients. Also, the patient is moving. So that plays a role in in the whole thing, right? They're breathing, they're moving. Yeah, they're laying on their stomach because it's still a, in those days, was it still transrectal biopsy. And the other challenge with it was that you couldn't do the whole sampling of the prostate. You really were just doing the targeted area. And so... That didn't seem to be a good solution to me. And this fusion concept emerged, which was the idea that if we take the MRI and we reconstruct it as a 3D model using software, 
And then we take the transrectal ultrasound we're doing on the day of the procedure, reconstruct that as a 3D model, we can fuse the two. And that three-dimensional fusion gave us a reasonably accurate representation of where in the prostate the MRI target was. And it allowed us then to target very small abnormalities down to five millimeters or four millimeters with reasonable accuracy. And the early studies showed we could do the targeting within two or three millimeters. The system we use at NYU, which is the one I brought in 2009, and we started doing fusion in early 2012, was a system that uses a robotic arm that allows us to track the position of this 3D model in 3D space and align the needle guide with great accuracy with that, with that point. So once we could institute that in early 2012, and you, you said you, you and I were talking earlier that one of the people you've had on the show was Jim Weissach. Jim was my fellow at the time, and he was in training with me. And this fusion concept I proposed as his master's thesis, and he wrote his master's degree on MRI fusion. So he should really be credited also with a lot of the early work. And our first study showed that fusion was a reasonably accurate way of targeting areas within the prostate, anywhere in the prostate, whether they're anterior, posterior, apex, base, we could hit them with great reliability. So that became our standard at NYU. And we decided at that point that every man who came to NYU was going to get a pre-biopsy MRI, that they were going to get an MRI-targeted biopsy when their MRI was positive. Early on, we biopsied everyone, regardless of what their MRI showed. Later on, we changed our approach. But by doing that and then enrolling everybody in a prospective study so we could measure their outcomes, we learned about the approach and scroll forward to now, it's completely in every respect, changed the way we think about the disease. And MRI has been shown to have benefit in screening, diagnostics for men with high PSAs, risk assessment to decide who needs treatment, surveillance for people who don't need treatment, and guiding treatment in people who do need it. So MRI, I would argue, in the pre-diagnostic setting has changed everything. And when we started doing it in 2012, Geo, I would literally go talk about it at meetings and the audience would visibly laugh at me that this was a ridiculous concept. I remember I gave a talk, I think, around probably 2015, 16 at the Society of Urologic Oncology, the plenary session. I did a debate I was on the MRI side, somebody else, I don't remember who was on the standard biopsy side. They asked the audience to raise hands at the end and vote who, which side they'd go with. And only about, in an audience of maybe 1,500 people, only about five people raised their hands on mm-hmm. my side, and three of them were my fellows. So we were ridiculed for this work early on and criticized. But we really fought it. We worked hard to make sure every patient got an MRI. And I would dare say now that I think pre-biopsy MRI is the standard of care. It's really emerged as what all men should have, even out in the community. It's not always done properly. And I still occasionally see men who have not had it. But so do I, which is I've been spoiled. Uh, this is why I started the conversation the way we did that. I feel so fortunate to be in this institution with all of you and with you particularly because I've been spoiled. It's like, wait a minute, no MRI. A little bit. We could get a little snobby with it if we're not careful some year. <laughs> it's like no MRI. What is this? Are we back in the old ages? So MRI fusion biopsy. <clears throat> Can we assess when you say when you talk about accuracy? What does that mean? Does that mean that it intentionally misses lower grade disease that we don't want to find anyway, like a Gleason 6, and particularly targets Gleason 7s or higher? Is that what you mean by that definition? So that's really the intention. So it's interesting. When you see a PIRAD score, so let's talk for a second for your audience about how a prostate MRI is a red. Early on, that was one of the challenges. So when Andy Rosencrantz and I first started doing it, we sat down and said, how should we report the MRI? 
And how can the radiologist convey to me how concerned they are? And so in those days, we would use five-point suspicion scores that were really based on opinion, five being the most suspicious, one being a normal MRI. And each area of abnormality within the prostate would be described by a suspicion score. And then we developed a localization so they could tell me where in the prostate they thought it was. That nomenclature that Andy developed very early in his career has really been copied by most institutions now and is utilized in most places when I see reports from elsewhere. So the reporting was important. Now, years later, the American College of Radiology said, well, it's good, but all these different radiologists are using sort of different criteria for their suspicion. We need to standardize it. And so through a committee, they developed this reporting system called PIRADS. PIRADS is basically a checklist they use to look for different attributes of what they see and assign a score. A one is a normal MRI, and each abnormal area gets rated from two to five. When they say suspicion, it's suspicion for what's called clinically significant prostate cancer. Now that can be defined in many different ways, but for most of us, it means Gleason 7 or higher, 3 plus 4 or higher. And so if somebody has a low-grade prostate cancer, the assumption is we don't really want to find that. That's probably what's fueling the overdetection criticism. And so what we're really looking for is the risk of high-grade disease. Now, it's interesting that some low-grade disease shows up very well on the MRI. Some low-grade disease does not. Some high-grade disease shows up very, most high-grade disease shows up very clearly. Very tiny amounts of high-grade disease may not. So clearly, our definition of clinically significant is based on what we know, but it may be that MRI is showing us something we don't know, showing us that disease we see is biologically relevant regardless of the Gleason score. That's a hypothesis that many people around the world are trying to prove, I just reviewed a PhD thesis. I was the examiner for PhD thesis for one of Mark Emberton's trainees. The whole premise was MRI visible disease is concerning and invisible disease is not. Period. Period. Now, I will say I'm not sure I'm ready to make that jump. There's probably always a bit of a gray zone. It's not black and white. But I do believe that the disease we see on the MRI, and I could give you a lot of examples of why, is probably more relevant disease. And I do believe that's why MRI diagnostics change the game. Because if we're relying on the MRI to tell us who needs a biopsy, we're finding the disease in the MRI abnormal area, we think we're finding disease for which treatment will improve longevity. And I think the next, unfortunately, it may take us a few more decades to see the very long-term outcomes but I do think there are hints already that that's true. Patients come to me, they say, okay, why do I need an MRI? And here's what I tell them now. What have we learned and how does it help you? Well, it's fundamentally a few ways. So the first way it really helps you, if you believe in it and you do it well, is that there are gonna be a certain number of men who don't need a biopsy. So if we take all men with elevated PSA and do an MRI, two-thirds of them will have an abnormality in the prostate that's rated with a PIRED score of three or higher. One-third will have an MRI that's rated as a PIRED score of one or two. Men with a PIRED score of one or two are far less likely to have cancer. Those men, they may still need a biopsy in some circumstances, but the overall rate of cancer detection when we biopsy them is under 10% in our own experience, up to 15% in the experience of others. So that has to do with how they're reading the MRI, but it's low. We can then factor in other things like the size of their prostate, their family history, their genetic history, the rate of their PSA rise to help us decide who among that group needs a biopsy. But if we go strictly by the MRI, we could avoid biopsy in a third of men. And that's what studies like the, the large randomized studies, precision trial, et cetera, have shown in the past, that about a third is very consistent 
could avoid a biopsy. Two-thirds will need a biopsy. Some places even feel pyrad three doesn't need a biopsy. Our data doesn't support that. And I think that all has to do with knowing what your institutional outcomes or your healthcare system outcomes are. But we biopsy everybody. So in that two-thirds now, the second benefit is we're far less likely to miss high-grade disease. Before we started the MRI work, I published a paper which showed that in my patients at NYU, if they had a, a negative biopsy, there was a one in seven chance that within their lifetime, they would end up with five more biopsies because mm. we tended to chase a rising PSA with repetitive random biopsies. So the second benefit of MRI-targeted biopsy is that if you have an MRI-targeted biopsy and it does not show cancer with proper targeting of the area of suspicion, it's very unlikely you have a missed high-grade cancer. So ruling out cancer is better. The third benefit is if you do have a cancer, the Gleason score assessment is gonna be far more accurate because now you're sampling the area of greatest concern. And that does pan out, it's not perfect. And I'll come back to why it's not perfect, but it's, it, it does pan out that when we take prostates out after MRI-targeted biopsy, the correlation, the concordance between the biopsy and the final Gleason score on the pathology is better. So mm. from that perspective, I also think we've improved the outcomes of patients. But that accurate Gleason score is most important for patients because it really reliably allows me to tell them if they're safe for surveillance or not. And that's panned out in our surveillance outcomes, which we can talk about a little bit. Why is it not perfect, as I said before? Well, it's because, fortunately or unfortunately, MRI fusion biopsy is still a surgical procedure. And like every surgical procedure, it has a learning curve. It has a quality. It's only going to be good if the operator invests time in learning to do it and takes the time to do it well. I think a lot of people still view it as a, it's a prostate biopsy, line it up, shoot a few needles, go in. I see a lot of fusion biopsies from the community that I don't believe because their MRI suggests their disease is much worse than what the biopsy is showing. And then we repeat. The so what's biopsy. happening? Are they missing? Are they not able to target that suspicious lesion from the MRI, you think? Yeah, a lot of things could be happening. One is that the MRI could be underinterpreted by the radiologist. Two is that when you do the biopsy, you a fusion can be affected in many ways. When people do an MRI the prostate is undisturbed. You're laying on a table in a tube, they're taking pictures, it's undisturbed. When you put an ultrasound probe in the rectum, the prostate saddles over it. Some patients, it becomes like a pancake. Some patients, it becomes like a, a horseshoe. Some patients, it just moves a little to the side or manipulates. You have to overcome that when you do the fusion. There are sequences within the fusion called deformation which allow you to realign and account for that, that if I have a tumor in the middle of the prostate and now I flatten the prostate, it's gonna to move to the side. Mm -hmm. So there is a learning curve that goes with fusion. And then of course, sampling adequately, observing where your needle's going, making sure the patient's not moving during the biopsy, making sure the prostate's not moving. Believe it or not, if you put a patient to sleep for a biopsy, their prostate moves around a lot more because their muscles are relaxed. So it can even. Oh, it, interesting. It can, you would think the opposite. No, I've always found the accuracy of fusion biopsy to be better in patients who are awake than when they're asleep. But I know out in the community, the sleep biopsy, patients like it better. It's not to say you can't do it, but it actually is harder work and you got to be more attentive, mm. I think, to the fusion. So more time consuming, yeah. too. So there are a lot of things that can influence that quality for sure. Now, just for the audience, you do anesthetize the prostate. So in this day and age, I mean, biopsies, even when I started working in prostate cancer 20 years ago, sometimes they were brutal and painful depending on the practitioner. Now the prostate area gets anesthetized so they don't feel much. Is that how it works? Yeah, look, there are two ways now to do a biopsy. There's been a lot of focus right. on doing transperineal biopsies, and that's because people believe by doing it, they will mitigate the risk of infection, right? Now, I'll tell you that we've been doing predominantly transrectal biopsies at NYU for 
my whole career and certainly recording the outcomes very accurately within the last, as I said, 12 years. Our rate of infection is far less than 1% with transrectal biopsy. It's probably about 0.1%. As an institution, not just with your practice. As an institution. Now, we don't, I guess you could argue somebody gets a biopsy, they go back to where they live in Pennsylvania and get sick two days later. We may not always hear about it, but I think we do because we follow up with all our patients. Our rate of infection has been very low and the concern for sepsis, I don't even really remember the last time we had a sepsis event after a biopsy at NYU. We've had fevers on rare occasions. So we've not totally bought in that everybody needs transperineal, but we're open to it. And so now at NYU, probably about 30% of the biopsies we do are transparent and we do those awake as well. So depending on the approach, transrectal, the nerve endings are fewer in the rectum. So when you do a local block with lidocaine and numb the prostate, I think transrectal tends to be better tolerated. There's more pain with a transperineal because you're having to put it through the skin between the scrotum and the anus and numb the skin and the underlying soft tissues and the muscles. So that an anesthetic process could be more uncomfortable. But either way, it can definitely be done with reasonable comfort level awake. It can be very quick. And most patients just do just fine with it. So in my practice, I really only do less than 5% of the biopsies I do are done under anesthesia in select cases where people really can't tolerate it awake. Samir, what's the... With the MRI fusion, I'm listening to you and I'm like, man, if I need a biopsy, this is the way to go. What's the, but of course, there's no absolutes in medicine. What's the false positive rate? And again, I, the way I would define it is false positive is anything that is recorded or found that is less than at least in seven, three plus four. Okay. So, so, so what's, what what's, saying, yeah. what's the, yeah, what's the rate that is, so you do MRI out of every hundred patients, how many false positives? So MRI says is three or four or higher, high PSA, relatively speaking, but it's a Gleason six or higher or less or less or negative biopsy. What's the false positive rate? Yeah, I don't know that I would say that's a false positive, but I guess I guess I understand what you're saying. So of the men who have MRI targeted biopsies, the likelihood of finding Gleason six in that ROI or region of suspicion is going to vary with the pirates. Okay, so if you have a pyrad 5, our data shows we find cancer in about 95% of pyrad 5 lesions. About 85% are Gleason 7 or higher. If you have a pyrad 4, in our data set, we find cancer in about 80% of those patients. About 60% are Gleason 7 or higher. So in that case... Mm-hmm. 25% of the men with cancer are Gleason 6, but 20% are benign. I'll come back to that. Pyred 3, we find cancer in about 60%, but only about 35% are Gleason 7 or higher. So there, almost half the men you diagnose are Gleason 6. So as you lower your threshold, you're going to find more Gleason 6. Now, when you have a Pyred 4 or 5 that shows no cancer, It either means the MRI was wrong, so that's really a false positive of the MRI, or it means the biopsy was wrong because it didn't hit the right area. That's a false negative of the biopsy. We've developed, or I'm currently in the heat of development of a quality improvement, quality assessment protocol to try and define why we have discordance between biopsy and MRI. So going back to that model of multidisciplinary interaction, about a year and a half ago, I built a new group that consists of radiologists and pathologists. And we meet for an hour and a half every Friday and review all the discordant cases in my practice. And we've built a system for saying, how do we assess the source of the discordant and how do we validate it? When we look Mm -hmm. at that, in about 470 biopsies that I did in a calendar year, 60 of them were discordant. So we still see a fair amount of discordance Mm. defined in different ways. And Mm. a lot of the source of that discordance is well distributed. It's either because maybe the radiologist over or under called it, 
because now we have our MRIs are read by a lot of different radiologists at NYU, not just one. And in some cases, we think it's MRI targeting and we think the patient needs a rebiopsy. So whenever we have a negative four or five, we always re-image that patient 12 months later, six to 12 months later. And if it's still persistent, we might tell them they should have another biopsy just to be sure we haven't missed something. And probably about a third of them on the rebiopsy will find some cancer in that location. One of the things I've seen with patients that I've seen from all over the country, and even people, patients around the world, is that there are two things as it relates to the MRI. One is, do they have access to an MRI? And an MRI that's, if they do have access to an MRI, is it the best technology, right? Because that continues to evolve. Second to that, and probably as important, even not more important, is who's reading it? It requires a very sensitive eye from a radiologist that does a lot, not just MRI for cancer, but MRI for prostate cancer. Of course, we have Andy at NYU, and he's one of the best, if not the best at it. But there again, how can we trust the folks that are the radiologists that are reading it from many other places around the country? Well, you're right. Can we take it for face value? No, you're dead on. This has been the Achilles tendon of MRI. Otherwise, if we didn't have that, what we call inter-reader reproducibility issue, MRI would be pervasive. And of course, access, as you say, which is a socioeconomic issue, is a limitation as well. The socioeconomic aspect, there is ongoing research at NYU to try and figure that out. And the inter-reader reproducibility, we have research ongoing to try and figure that out. Both of those are rooted potentially in artificial intelligence or machine learning, right? right? So the first problem of access, well, it's because a three Tesla scanner, which is now emerging as sort of what people want for imaging, it's an expensive machine. To do a good multi-parametric MRI is a 40-minute protocol. So you can only scan a certain number of people on that scanner each day. And certain healthcare systems, there are going to be fewer scanners. Certain geographic areas of the United States, there are going to be fewer scanners. So how do you resolve that? Some of my colleagues in radiology at NYU are developing uh, the concept of what if you did a low frequency, uh, I'm sorry, a low resolution scan, 0.5 Tesla or uh, 0.2 Tesla. Uh, which would give you a low resolution image, but would give you all the image data and then use artificial intelligence after the scan to build up or bulk up the resolution. Would that be just as good? Then you could scan somebody in eight minutes mm. on a relatively cheap scanner and uh, and increase access. So that work is underway. There, there already are low resolution scanners in the market that people are using for guidance, less for diagnostics. But that might be one man. We also have a new device called Micro Ultrasound, which is a 29 megahertz ultrasound that's emerged. Thank, thank you for mentioning because that was good. We're going to head right into Micro Ultrasound. So go ahead and take it away. Um, if you could, I just saw Jim the other day. He says he's showing me this image of a Micro Ultrasound MRI fusion. He said, look how great it looks. Of course, I vaguely know how great it looks because I don't have much to compare to. But he's like, look, this area. Oh, my God, I got to send it to Samir. Right. So he's excited about the possibility. So. What is micro ultrasound? Wh who has access to this? And what's the future with the use of micro ultrasound and, fu and fusion with MRI and biopsies and so forth moving forward? So micro ultrasound is just higher resolution ultrasound. Most of the ultrasound that's been used for biopsies and prostate imaging has varied. The frequency of the ultrasound correlates with the resolution of what you see. So as an example, we image prostates now at a frequency range of 5 megahertz up to 12 megahertz on most commercially available devices. The old ones when I started were probably 4 or 5 megahertz. Now most are 9 or 12 megahertz. The pro of a higher frequency, very good resolution close to the probe. The con with a big prostate, you won't see the front of it that well. So there's a size limit to what you can image. Low frequency goes very far, so you see a big gland, but your resolution is not so good. So micro-ultrasound is at a frequency typically of 29 megahertz or up to 29 megahertz. 
So what that allows, and they've built into this system, it's by a company in Canada, some post-processing that allows you to image fairly large glands counterintuitively, even though you're using a 29 megahertz ultrasound. And with that, you really are able to see amazing gland architecture within the prostate. You can see the individual ducts. If I image somebody who's had a biopsy before, I can see the scar line of the needle track from their previous biopsy. The early data in many centers in Europe and Canada suggested that microalgesound may be equivalent to MRI, and they developed a scale called the Primus scale, which is similar to Pyrad's five-point scale of suspicion, and they really suggested that you see most of what you see with MRI, you see some tumors you don't see on MRI, and you miss a few that you see on MRI. So there's, a, there's about a 90% overlap between the two. So they approached me, the company that manufactured it approached me about three years ago to serve as a scientific advisor to say, how would you, maybe even longer, four years ago, how would you compare this to MRI? And so along with a group of other investigators, we designed a trial called the Optimum Trial, which is ongoing right now, which is directly comparing MRI and microultrasound. And in, in, in an effort to decide if we want to be in that study trial, I brought in microultrasound to NYU about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. And we're doing a number of early pilot studies. The problem we've learned is that there is a substantial learning curve, just like the older ultrasound. So for urologists to accurately read the ultrasound, I think there's quite a learning curve that goes into that. We didn't love the fusion that was built in with the device. So what Jim was showing you the other day, we're sort of building our own integration of Artemis and microultrasound. That'll make me more confident of the ability to tell what's what. And I guess the jury's still out. Now, whether that would give access socioeconomically to more people, it's still an expensive machine. And people would have to buy it on top of the existing ultrasound equipment they had. So I'm not convinced it's going to increase access. It may reduce quality because now you're relying, instead of relying on hundreds of radiologists, you're relying on thousands of individual urologists to read the microultrasound. And it never really worked in the 90s, as I told you. So we're learning about it. We'll have more data on it in years to come. But I'm not totally convinced that it's the solution to the problem. Do you see with what you're doing with microultrasound and microultrasound fusion that there's something possibly there that may be revolutionary where you can see it much better and target better? Is that where you think it's going to go? So I have a advisor, longtime patient advice. A lot of my patients become my advisors, but very successful businessman often tells me that when he's asked to invest in something, He's asked, is it evolutionary or revolutionary? He'll ask, because he wants to invest mm. in revolutionary technologies. I would say microultrasound is more evolutionary than revolutionary. Revolution means you're completely changing the game. I think MRI in many respects was revolutionary in the diagnostic mm. paradigm. I think microultrasound is evolutionary. Now, I will say, when I was first asked that question, I went back and studied it to say, what is the difference? And there is a belief that sometimes evolutionary technologies can become revolutionary, but it requires a leap of faith at some mm -hmm. point. You have mm -hmm. to really believe in it and say, okay, we're going to dive in head first. Maybe that's what we did with MRI at NYU, and that's why it became revolutionary. So for now, maybe not revolutionary just yet. <laughs> nah, right. We'll see. Time will tell. Yeah. Let's go into focal therapy. We don't have to go into cryo. We don't have to go into much because I've covered that quite a bit with Jim and others and Cianti in the past. But you're working on a very interesting trial. Yeah. So if you can briefly talk about what focal therapy is, though I've done that a little bit very briefly, and then go into the trial with a new technology that you're studying on a, a new focal therapy approach. So take it away. Yeah. So we... I guess I talk too much because we're coming near the end of the hour and we didn't cover no, that's okay. the topics. But I will tell you that the two areas that I think MRI has really most impacted the way we practice is in surveillance, just briefly by de-escalating the number of biopsies we have to do. 
I now biopsy men every five years on surveillance and our early data shows that we can use MRI to bridge that gap to be sure we're not losing control of the disease. Hold right there. That's important. I, I know we look, I have this is such a great conversation. I just want to respectful, be respectful of your time, Samir. Active surveillance. It used to be or it is still that every year you get a biopsy until maybe two or three years. And you're saying that based on your data, after the first biopsy, you can hold off to another five years before doing another? No. So the way my protocol is set up, we do an MRI targeted biopsy. And then within year one or two, we do a confirmatory biopsy. And my mm-hmm. data really shows that's particularly important if you have pyrid three or higher. My data really, we're just looking at it. We're getting ready to publish it. But it shows about 30% of men have disease reclassification at year one. That may reflect that there are a certain number of early progressors. And it probably also reflects that targeting accuracy issue, right? Biopsy accuracy. So once we get past the confirmatory, if they are still in that 70% who are low risk, then I drop their biopsy interval typically to every five years if they're GG1, starting to do more surveillance for GG2, at least in three plus four. And in those men, I might biopsy them maybe three years because we're still learning about their progression rate. But our early data shows that if we you're stable on MRI, you're stable on PSA, then at five years, your reclassification rate or need for treatment rate is about 10%. And we've seen no metastasis to date at a median follow-up in those men of now over 100 months. I'll also say that of the men that we follow in that five-year interval, there are a subset that we decide to biopsy because their MRI is getting worse. And in those men, probably about a third end up getting treated. So I think MRI is a good way of following men. I don't think it totally replaces biopsy just yet but it can greatly de-escalate the number of biopsies that are needed. With regard to the focal therapy, there's a lot to talk about there because MRI really, if you think about it, why didn't we do focal therapy in the past? The breast surgeons have been doing focal therapy for my whole career, lumpectomy instead of mastectomy, and that's because they had the mammogram. So we didn't have an image to tell us where the tumor was until we had MRI. Now my focal therapy research predates my MRI research. I started doing focal therapy research probably around 2006, 2007, just studying pathology and trying to understand the distribution of the cancer in the prostate. And what we learned was that there were a subset of men who had disease limited to one lobe or limited to one area. And then in the interest of time, I'll just say that MRI has better enabled us to identify those men. The problem was always with a 12-core biopsy, if I showed cancer on one side of the prostate, there was at least a 50% chance I was missing the side of their index tumor. So now with MRI, we know the laterality of the tumor reliably. We can map it with biopsy and get a pretty good depiction. Now, it's very controversial, so I don't wanna minimize the topic. We don't know that focal therapy is equivalent to radical therapy. We don't have long-term comparative outcomes. There's very little reported single institution data beyond five years. I've been doing focal therapy at NYU for about 12, and I do see reasonably good disease control in about two-thirds to three-quarters of men who are out beyond five to seven years of follow-up in in my patients. So Mm -hmm. focal therapy, I think, is very important. Briefly to tell you about the study that we've done One of the real questions is how do you study focal therapy? It's hard to compare to radical prostatectomy. Hard to really compare to surveillance because the people you want to treat are not the people necessarily who would be watched, but they may be the people who have disease that you want to treat. So we proposed a study design with a company called Francis Medical to the FDA about four years ago and worked with the FDA to try and get this cleared because what we want is a technology that is approved for use in prostate cancer and shown to benefit men with prostate cancer. And so usually the FDA wants randomized data for that, but we proposed a single arm trial design uh, where we're treating roughly 290 men in multiple centers across the US. This is a study I'm overseeing with Arvin George from Johns Hopkins. And in this study, we're treating men with Gleason 3 plus 4 disease that are identified in a PIRAD 3 or higher 
single focus in the prostate. And the way we're treating them with is with a STEAM technology. So the STEAM technology has been FDA cleared for BPH for a while under a name called Resume. The application, this is a separate application. It has a longer needle that can reach different parts of the prostate. It uses MRI localization. But the basic concept is you put a scope into the urethra and from the tip of the scope, you advance a needle into the prostate to the site of the presumed tumor or the proven tumor, and you inject steam vapor that destroys the tissue. And then we build out the steam vapor as a margin around that area, 10 millimeter margin, based on some things I've published years ago. And the, there are a couple of very interesting aspects to this. One is that the steam very reliably destroys the tissue. Two is that the steam is trapped by the capsule of the prostate and the surrounding connective tissue. So there's no escape to the surrounding nerves or rectum or sphincter in general. So theoretically, the toxicity should be very low. And the other is that the disruption of the prostate is very minimal. It'll shrink that area. It might relieve urinary symptoms like it does for BPH but it doesn't seem to cause a lot of scarring or cavitation or things that we see with some of the other energy sources. So I'm very excited about it. Now, the key attribute of this trial that makes it unique, and this might take longer than a minute, but I'll try, All right. is that it allows for us to view focal therapy as a management strategy. And so my thinking on focal therapy is changing. I don't mm. think it can be a replacement necessarily for radical prostatectomy. But I think it can be a very good long-term management strategy. And what I mean by that is that the one attribute that's very striking about low early stage prostate cancer, they have a very long natural history. The Protex study, which was just published, showed that even when you randomize men to surveillance, their risk of death of prostate cancer at 15 years is no different than men who've had a radical prostatectomy or radiation. Some of those men need to be treated along the way, but the delay in treatment doesn't seem to increase their risk of mortality, although their metastasis rate was slightly higher. I spent some time recently with Freddie Hamdi, who runs the Protect, and what, something he said really struck me, and it was that he's learning that for a lot of men with favorable risk prostate cancer, they're unlikely to die of the disease it may be that the worst thing that happens to them in their lifetime is a radical prostatectomy. And if you can use focal therapy to avoid that need, but still treat their cancer and mitigate their risk of death from the cancer, you may be doing them the biggest favor. And so we constructed the Francis trial, really the Vapor 2 trial, to allow us to retreat men all along the five years of the study. So if they ever develop three plus four in the area we treated, or even in a new area, the FDA is allowing us to go back and retreat them, not consider that failure, but consider that part of the national history of the disease. If ever their disease becomes more aggressive, four plus three or higher, then those are men that we would say, probably the treatment's failed and we need to move on to a different treatment. So in a way- Why is that, why is that Samir? So to me, so what I think I've learned, <laughs> I'm always questioning what I learned, though I've been in the field for a while, is it's, if it's a Gleason 7, 3 plus 4, or a Gleason 9, a cancer is a cancer. And if we have evidence there's no cancer anywhere outside of the capsule, why not treat it with focal therapy, vapor, or any other, despite the Gleason score? Yeah, so it's two different questions in a way. So I would love to treat 4 plus 3 disease with the vapor, but the FDA views focal as investigational, and we really had to focus on a favorable risk group. So the data we'll get out of it will tell us, look, are you reducing the likelihood that somebody needs a radical prostatectomy for Gleason 3 plus 4 as compared to somebody who goes on surveillance for 3 plus 4, right? So if you go on surveillance for 3 plus 4, what would be the trigger for treatment? It would probably be 4 plus 3 or higher. If you get a vapor treatment for 3 plus 4, what should be the trigger for treatment to be to have good equipoise or equality in the comparison? it would probably be four plus three or higher. And so that's the rationale in the study. Now your question of why not do a focal on Gleason 9? It's a really good question. It's controversial. My philosophy until I have longer term data has been 
that I need to understand how good the local regional control is before I'm willing to treat very high-risk patients with focal. Why? Well, what's the consequence if I ablate somebody with a three plus four cancer and then three years later, they come back to me and they have a recurrence? The vast majority of those men, they're still early in their disease and will be able to salvage effectively with a second treatment. What's the consequence if I undertreat a Gleason 9 cancer, but I don't know about it for three or four years when their imaging starts to show their recurrence. I may have missed my window in which I can durably control them. So to me, it's all about understanding the adequacy of the local regional treatment. When we have data that shows us that we can reliably cryoablate or HIFU a patient, and 10 years later, there's no local recurrence in that spot, then I buy into the idea. And maybe we're getting there. We're seeing more and more longer-term data. But that's been, I think, for me at least, the reason I don't treat those men. I'm certainly in favor, and we're going to end here. I'm in favor of the patient's participation in decision-making, right? So there's some patients who are well-informed they go to the best physicians, they get second and third opinions. And I said, look, I have a Gleason 8. Based on quality of life and things, if PSMA is negative, MRI showing everything is local, I want focal, and then I'll do aggressive lifestyle interventions with you and let's see what happens. I'm willing to take that chance. I think that's a reasonable approach if the patient frames it that way. What do you think? Yeah, look, I think it takes a maturity in practice, right? Early in my career, I would have refused that patient, said, look, I don't want to be responsible. Now, I do engage in that shared decision process. So I'm not going to tell you in my focal series of, I don't know, 600 men I've treated that I don't have Gleason 8 and even occasional older men with Gleason 9s. I do, but it's not something I recommend to patients. So yes, there can be a shared decision process. Patients ultimately are the drivers of what they choose for prostate cancer. And look, I take the viewpoint of saying, if I can't prove to you it's worse, then I suppose if there's missing data there, it's for you to interpret just as it's for me to interpret. The best I can do is give you my advice. But yes, there are going to be patients who will choose alternative approaches. And I don't any longer tell them I won't work with them unless it reaches the point where everything I say, they say, no, that's not the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it another way. Then I feel I'm no longer really their physician. And then they should seek somebody else out. Great. Some of your final thoughts and where can people find you? People can find me down the hall from you at (laughs) NYU Langone Medical (laughs) Center, 222 East 41st Street, NYU Urology (laughs) Associates. Final thoughts, lots more to talk about. So maybe we'll do another one down the road and continue on some of these topics. It's been really exciting decade for me in my career because I've seen changes emerging from the observations we've made. And as a physician scientist, that's really the best part of the career. Great. We'll have links to your the website at NYU in, in case people want to find you and track you down and make appointments and or participate in any of these studies. Speaking of studies, Vapor 2 trial, how can people, if they're interested, sign up to it? They can either sign up by contacting my office and we can certainly refer them or there are links to it through the Perlmutter Cancer Center website. It's well marketed on our website and our research coordinators can reach out to you as well. Great. Samia, thank you so much. Have a great day, man, and I'll see you soon. Take care, Gio. (laughs) Thanks again. Bye. You too. All right. That was my conversation with Dr. Samir Tanasia. A lot of diagnostics with prostate cancer. Where were we? Where are we now? How do we diagnose prostate cancer? What's the best approach? And focal therapies. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for further episodes coming up on all things urology, prostate cancer, sexual medicine, and more. Thank you so much. And thank you for being a part of this community. Much love. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. (laughs) It has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have 
75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time.